the primary refrain throughout Psalm 130 and 131 is found in verse 7 of 130 and in verse 3 of Psalm 131. O Lord, O Israel, hope in the Lord. Now, as is true with many of the Psalms of Ascent, the goal is, to, is for the readers to cast their eyes upward and to look to the Lord for salvation. But what exactly does it mean to hope in the Lord, right? So we, we are familiar with that phrase, hope in the Lord, but what does that look like in practicality? What does it look like in our daily lives? According to the psalmist, hope in the Lord is manifested in three primary ways. First, hope in the Lord is manifested when we cry out to God for mercy. We're going to see that in chapter 130, verses 1 and 2. It also comes as we wait on God in anticipation of his redemption. So we have crying out to God, we have waiting on God, and then finally, hope in the Lord is manifested when we quiet our hearts in humility before God. So quieting our hearts. In each of these actions, we demonstrate a trust in the Lord's faithfulness to redeem us. We basically accept that what God has promised, what God has said he was going to do, that he will do. Now, Psalm 130 and 131 may be two different psalms. They, they are not the same psalm. And yet, if we read them together, I think these psalms teach us that we should recognize our sin for the enemy that it is. But we should also recognize the Lord as our Savior. While sin is indescribably evil and deadly, God's subsequent mercy and forgiveness allow us to experience his goodness. In no way condoning sin, I think we as Christians who believe in a sovereign God can accept that even our sin can be used to teach us something about God. Okay, that sounds dangerous to say, right? That even our sin can teach us something about God and even his goodness. C.S. Lewis writes that in the aftermath of sin, we become jolly beggars. I love that. Jolly beggars. It's important to hear that he's not saying that sin is good, or even that sin works out for a good outcome by itself, that it, it could ever do that. What he is saying, though, is that God in his sovereignty is not hindered by our sin, but can actually work despite our sin to show us something about himself, namely our need for his grace. He continues, the good man is sorry for the sins that have increased his need for mercy, but he is not entirely sorry for the fresh need for mercy they have produced. So when we sin, we feel this tension, don't we? There's a fresh reminder every time we sin that we desperately need the Lord's mercy. That's a good thing. The sin itself is not good. The sin itself is evil and wicked and bad and death-dealing. Death the sin itself is incredibly wicked and, and works to corrupt our souls. But God in his sovereignty utilizes the opportunity to show us our fresh need for his mercy. After every sin, that should be the, the inevitable outcome, the inevitable result that we learn is that while we're truly sorry for our sin... We should also be grateful for the fresh reminder of just how much we need God and his love and his mercy. I think we should approach our sin in this way as the psalmist does. He acknowledges he has sin. I think there's even a bit of an exasperation that just knows that he is a sinner. Surprise, surprise, sinners sin. 
You shouldn't sin. We all know that, right? We know that we should do everything possible to avoid sin. But is there anyone that believes that we could ever reach a perfect state in which we're not going to sin? Well, not in this lifetime, right? Sinners are going to do what? Sin. Does that mean that we should sin? No, don't sin. Try not to sin, but know that you're going to sin. You can make sense of all that confusing language. You're going to sin because you're a sinner. You shouldn't sin. Sin is bad. But yet, as Christians who know that we are sinful and that we're going to sin, we look to God for the fresh reminder of our need for his mercy every time we sin. We look at our sin, and from it, we don't see what we can do. We, from it, we look and see what God has done for us and the mercy that he has given us and just how dependent we are on him. And so, we should be grateful for the fresh reminder every day as we are sinners that we need the Lord for redemption. So, Psalm 130 and 131 tells you to sit back, don't get comfortable in your sin, But it does tell you to sit back and accept your role as a jolly beggar. You will never, ever be free from your need for for God and his mercy. You will never be free from the need for God's goodness and love. Everything we receive from God that is good and noble and gracious is all of God's goodness and none of our merit, right? We are jolly beggars. The psalmist writes, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Again, as is true with most of the psalms of ascent, we have no idea what the psalmist is going through or what exact trouble he's facing. He says he calls out from the depths. The depths are a common image for trouble or distress or some kind of oppression typically caused by an enemy. So, for example, in Psalm Chapter 69, verse 2, the psalmist is in the depths because those who hate him want to destroy him. In Lamentations 3, God's people lament that their enemies hunt them like a bird, and then they cry out to the Lord from the depths. So depths are typically some sort of oppression brought about by an enemy. So who's the enemy of Psalm 130? Well, it's not an external invader. It's not a political national enemy. It's not anyone trying to take Jerusalem. The enemy in Psalm 130 is the psalmist's own sin, his own propensity to to rebel, his own propensity to drift from the Lord, hence his need, his plead for mercy that will lead to forgiveness. The greatest obstacle, I want you to hear this so clearly, pilgrims, The greatest obstacle that keeps us outside the promised land, the greatest obstacle that keeps us outside of the Edenic presence of God is no other person around us, no group of people, no political adversaries, not the world itself. It is you and your sin. Sin is your greatest enemy. God's holiness and our sin cannot commingle. You realize if there was no one else in the planet, if Satan didn't exist, he does, but if he didn't exist, then it was just you and your sinful self and the Lord, you could not live with him. Because God's holiness and sin cannot commingle. God's holiness seeks to rid sin. It seeks to 
cast out sin and cleanse sin and destroy sin, um, while sin is the absolute rejection of God's holiness. Sin and God's holiness are antithetical to the other's existence. God's holiness will not let sin alive, let, leave sin alive, and sin will not abide God's holiness. They are so utterly opposed to each other that they seek to destroy each other. Now, the psalmist acknowledges the tension here. He needs a relationship with the Lord. He needs God, and yet he's a sinner. He says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, that's, that's sin, that's transgressions, O Lord, who could stand? I mean, he's just simply asking, if the Lord kept count of everything that we did wrong, then who could ever have a hope of being in his presence? Who could ever have a hope of having a relationship with him? The answer is no one. No matter how good they think they are, no matter how moral they are, no matter how ethical they might be, if God kept track of the wrong that we did, none of us would stand in his presence. We're all sinful, and therefore we're all bound to be exiled and separated from God. All would die. All have sinned, and therefore all fall short of the glory of God. The psalmist sees his own sin and he sees it as the greatest obstacle to his return home. That's the thing standing in the way. By crying out to the Lord, he places his hope in the only one who's strong enough to overcome sin through forgiveness. Now, this should teach us how to view our sin. Whatever troubles you might face, your, your greatest threat is not external, it's internal. And you see that throughout the entire biblical storyline. If you go back to the book of Exodus, for example, what's the, what's the greatest problem keeping Israel outside the promised land? Not Egypt. Egypt's a relatively short section of Exodus, isn't it? I mean, it kind of comes and goes like that. By Exodus 12, the people are out of Egypt. God even tells Pharaoh, I could have wiped you out with pestilence long before this, but I chose not to because I want to glorify myself among the nations. Egypt is not the main problem. It's not the thing that's keeping Israel out of the promised land. And in the end, the thing that keeps them out of the promised land is their own propensity to build golden calves, to worship Baal, and to not trust the Lord. They get all the way into the promised land, they get fearful, and they turn to go back to Egypt. Not because Pharaoh's come to collect them, but because they want to go back. Because their own sinful heart wants to put them back. As Christians, we groan and mumble about all the external, external things about us that are, are presumably keeping us from enjoying the presence of God. They're not the problem. They're not the problem. Other things are not the problem. The thing that steals the joy of having a relationship with God is my pride, is my selfishness, my idolatry. My own propensity to not slow down to enjoy the Lord. The biggest problem that keeps us out of the Lord's presence is ourselves. I know we don't like being told that. We, we tend to have this victim mentality that likes for everybody else to be the problem. But then when we hear that we are the problem, we get super offended. My friends, at the end of the day, you stand before a holy God and you face him for your sin. And it is your sin that has caused the division between you and God. That's the biggest problem you face. So, what's the biggest obstacles for us today? It's not making sure 
who's in the right power. It's not making sure whether or not we're making enough money. It's not making sure that all the people we disagree with are put out away from us. No, our biggest problem is keeping our own hearts centered on the Lord and in love with God. That's our biggest problem is our own sinful drift. But here's the good news. As prone as we are to drift, as strong as our sin is, the fact that we cannot get out of our own sin because it's too strong for us and it holds us captive, there's good news. God is stronger than your sin. Sin's incredibly strong. I have seen addicts who cannot get out of the thing that they're addicted to. I've seen prideful people not be able to put down their pride. I, I know for myself that, that when, when my sin pops up, it is incredibly difficult to get out of it. But God is stronger than our own sinful hearts. God overcomes the obstacle. Because you see, if God were to count the iniquities, none of us would stand. And then the psalmist says, but with you there is forgiveness. Why is it that anyone stands before the Lord? Not because we clean ourselves up, not because we get better, not because we uh, solve the problem in our own hearts, but explicitly because God does. God forgives us. God is the one who, who, who wipes away the wrong and cleans the slate. The only way anyone could stand before the Lord is because of his grace to pardon sins. You may not believe me now, but when you stand before the Lord, there will be no one saying, I earned this. No one. It is all of grace and pardon and forgiveness. You stand before the Lord because of God's own good pleasure to have you there. Just because he loves and because he forgives what a freeing gospel that is. I didn't have to make it by my works. I didn't have to make it by how good I am. I didn't have to show my political affiliation on the way in the door. I didn't have to dress a certain way. I didn't have to speak a certain way. I didn't have to do all these certain things. I'm simply here by the grace of God. I sin in his presence just because he delights to have me in his presence when there's nothing to delight in because he chooses to forgive because he's a forgiving God. Now the psalmist's hope in the Lord's forgiveness begs a question. How can the God who by no means clear the guilty also forgive sin? You see, if the, if the Lord simply wipes away this psalmist's sin, the psalmist clearly acknowledges, I'm a sinner, and if you counted my sin, I couldn't stand before you. But with you, there's forgiveness. There's a problem here. If the Lord simply says, ah, all's well, we're good, you're fine, just, just come on in, you know, we'll just ignore what you did. If God did that, he would not be a just and holy God. You realize that? Like, like forgiveness without justice is not true forgiveness, and, it, and it, it mangles the idea of forgiveness. Forgiveness without justice leaves us without justice, right? So, so if God forgives, but he doesn't judge the sin, there's a big problem with our God. God has revealed himself from the beginning that he is the Lord, the Lord, who is gracious and forgiving the sins of thousands, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So this psalmist has given us a dilemma. How can God, who, if he counted sin, no one would stand, how could God, who is just, rightly forgive this psalmist? And I think it's here 
that the psalmist plants a seed that won't, be, that won't bear fruit until the Gospels. He plants a seed right here in Psalm 130, knowing that we're going to see the fruit of it when we come to the cross. The cross is the answer to the question. How can a just and holy God forgive sin? Well, by punishing sin on the cross. You realize every single one of your sins have been paid for, have been, have been punished. It's just you've not been punished. You've been forgiven because somebody else was damned. You've been forgiven because somebody else was condemned. In your place condemned, Jesus stood. The condemnation of your sin wasn't just wiped away. It was poured out. It was received by the Son of God who took on flesh just so that he could bleed and die and pay the penalty for our transgressions. Why? So that we could stand forgiven. So the Lord would not count the iniquities that we have done because he counted them in Christ. Psalm 130 sets us up for the gospel by asking that question, if we're sinful, how can the Lord forgive? And it's from our post-resurrection view where we see that Jesus has died, was buried, and that he rose again, that we're able to say, ah, oh, this is how it happens. This is how sinners are forgiven and allowed to stand in the presence of God. It's something that should give us great joy. In his old age, John Newton once wrote, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Realize we'll be saying that for all time. We are great sinners. Christ is a great Savior. There will be a day that he wipes out our sin, gives us new bodies, and sin won't be a pestilential problem like it is anymore. But at the moment, that's all we can say. We are great sinners, but Christ is even greater Savior. And it's because he is a Savior who is happy to forgive that we stand forgiven. Now, most people would rightly celebrate the concept of forgiveness. Forgiveness does more than simply letting sinners off the hook, however. I think we idolize this concept of grace and forgiveness in a way that it actually changes the biblical concept of grace. Okay, the Bible talks about grace. Okay, the, the Bible says I'm forgiven. Therefore, you can't tell me that I'm in sin. Who are you to judge? I've heard that so many times as a pastor where there's a, there's a person who clings to the cross in the sense of I'm forgiven, therefore I can do X, Y, Z. The psalmist here says that's impossible. Look at what he says. But with you there is forgiveness. And then there's the rest of the sentence that says what? That you may be feared. That's weird. That you may be feared. Forgiveness leads to a greater love and obedience to God. When we come to the recognition that we are sinners, when we come to the recognition that our sin has been paid for on the cross, when we come to the recognition that we stand in God's presence only because of his gracious forgiveness, the result of all that leads to greater obedience and love for God, not less. It doesn't lead to license to sin, it doesn't give us a ticket to do whatever we want to do. It simply frees us up to obey and love God even more. As Paul says in Romans 6, what shall we say then? Are we, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The implicit statement there is that grace is abounding and grace will continue to abound. We're sinners and grace will continue to be poured out. Grace will continue to be given. So what does that mean? We can just do what we want now? 
that we may continue in sin, that grace may abound. He says this, by no means. It's as illogical as if Israel were to say, great, God has redeemed us from Egypt. Now let's serve Pharaoh. That's what we do when we continue to sin after forgiveness, that we've been set free from our slavery, set free from our captivity, set free from our propensity to drift and to chase after other idols, and yet we continue in that slavery willingly. Paul talks over and over again about submitting ourselves back into slavery after we've been freed. The idea of forgiveness is that it frees you up to joyfully tremble at the Lord's presence, his love, and to reject all lesser substitutes. Forgiveness, if you've appropriately understood it, should win your affections. Should win your affections. So that you love all these other substitutes less. It doesn't mean that you don't you know, drink, or it doesn't mean that you don't love your wife, or it doesn't mean that you don't be proud of your kids. It just, it just simply means that your affections are now properly placed, that your affection and the, the sweetness of affection belongs to God. The primacy of affection belongs to God. Forgiveness wins our affection so that all these other things are lesser than. And we give our primary desire to God other things cannot satisfy, but God alone can. So when we are forgiven, the increase of the fear of God comes, which means that we are then seeking satisfaction in the Lord alone and not in all these other substitutes that we've been seeking satisfaction in. So what does hoping the Lord mean? Hoping in the Lord means that we cry out to the Lord for mercy, especially when we recognize our own sin. Especially when we recognize our own sin. But second, it also means waiting on the Lord. The psalmist writes, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. In his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. He repeats that twice. Now, one lexicon defines the word uh, used for wait here as hope directed towards a target. So it's not like just, just wait, just sit there and do nothing. It's not that kind of wait. It's a wait that actually has a goal in it. It's a it's more like waiting for Christmas Day. Like, you remember when you were kids, right? And you've got the 25 days to Christmas counting down, and you're expecting that when day 25 comes, there's going to be great joy and happiness. This is the kind of waiting we're talking about, that we wait with this childlike anticipation that Christmas Day is coming, and the excitement grows. The anticipation grows as the day comes nearer and nearer. The psalmist uses the analogy of a watchman who waits for the morning. Watchmen were the city guards, right? They, uh, if you watch Lord of the Rings, they're the guards that you know walk on the top of the gate, and they just watch for uh, attackers. They watch for um, invaders, and and their goal is to warn the city and to wake up the city if there is an attack. And especially at night, everybody's vulnerable. But for the watchman, the best sight is dawn, the sunrise. That means his watch is coming to an end. That means that the, the, the time of the most vulnerability is passing. He watches for the morning in great anticipation that God's people will be safe, that the city will be safe and spared from an attack. It's not as if he's saying, well, I hope morning comes. He's watching for the morning to come. He's expecting it to happen. 
In an even greater way, the psalmist waits in anticipation. Now, what exactly does he anticipate? What is he waiting for? He says he waits for the Lord, and in his word he hopes. Now, God's word in this verse refers to his promises, all the things that he said he was going to do, to bless his people, to bring them into his presence, to uh, reverse the fall, uh, all these things that he has promised to do, to crush the serpent, and he's waiting for God to give his promises. God has promised, so it's not a question of if, but a question of what? When, right? So, so there's a whole bunch of if questions, if what God said is true. No, 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 what God said is true. So when God does what he says, then we will receive the fulfillment of his promises. God has spoken and he means it. When he says resurrection, he means resurrection. Like that is, that is what's coming for us. Divine presence, face to face, blessing, enemy death being trampled down, the serpent being crushed. My friends, one of the problems of being a gospel-centered church is you hear this every week, but it should nonetheless be just as exciting than the week before. We are one more Sunday closer than we were last week. One more Sunday closer to graves opening up. One more Sunday closer to no longer fearing death. No, no more goodbyes. No more sadness. No more tears. No more fear. The sheer presence of the Lord. One more Sunday closer. And next week you'll hear the same thing, but we'll be one more Sunday closer. The psalmist has this kind of faith that just waits, and it's just the beauty of knowing that, that God will keep his promises. Here's the beauty of what the psalmist is saying. He's waiting, right? Which means that he knows that God's promises are going to happen, even for him. He just acknowledged he was a sinner. He just acknowledged that if God counted his sins, no one could stand. He couldn't stand before the presence of the Lord. He just asked for mercy, and yet now he can say, I confidently wait. I'm expecting your promises to come, and I'm waiting. He understands that nothing can hinder the promise of God, not even himself. Man, if we were up for ourselves, we would shipwreck really quickly, right? We'd wreck this thing. Gosh, I come close to wrecking it every Tuesday, <laughs> right? We would just wreck it. If it were up to us, it would totally careen off the, war, off the road and be a big, violent blow-up crash, uh, bodies everywhere, you know? It'd be terrible. But the, there's good news. It's not up to you. The, the resurrection's not up to you. The resurrection's not dependent on how good you are. The promises of God aren't dependent on whether you sin tomorrow or not. All of God's promises depend on who? God. That's the kind of dependency that we're to come to God with. That, that it's not, no, the political enemies of the world are not going to keep the promises of God back. No, natural disasters are not going to keep the promises of God back. No, cancer's not going to do it. And I myself will not be able to change the promises of God. All it is for me to do is to depend on him 
and to come to him. Serious though sin may be, even my sin cannot frustrate God's plan or his promises. It doesn't mean that I should just free, sin freely and say, okay, well, since it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, I'm just going to do it. That's not at all. That should free us up to obey. That should free us up to love because it's in the knowledge that I can't wreck the purposes of God. That then gives me confidence to walk with him. The freedom and enjoyment to, to, to walk with him in trust. It also recalibrates my heart to see what my place is in all these things. I've got to come to God. Addictions, I've got to come to God. Sins, I've got to come to God. Pride issues, I've got to come to God. Materialism, I've got to come to God. All these things, I've got to come to God first and foremost. If I don't come to God, then I'm going to wreck it. But we're absolutely dependent on him for everything. So, sin is great. God's promises are greater. All the last 10 minutes just to say that. We cry out to the Lord for mercy. We wait for the Lord. And finally, we call out to others. We call others to hope in the Lord as well. The psalmist uh, has already, he's worked from himself to now he's talking to others. So he's talked about, I cry out, I wait. Now he speaks to Israel. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So what began as a personal commitment to cry out and to hope and to wait now becomes a public announcement for all Israel to hope in the Lord. And where better to put their hope? With the Lord is chesed, right? Covenant-keeping love. With the Lord is undeserved love, right? It's, it's, it's a steadfast love regardless of what Israel does. He is the one who will not abandon them. With him is redemption plentiful, which means that he doesn't just restore, he restores better than, right? So when he gives Eden back, it won't just be Eden. It'll be an Eden that can't be lost again. So with him, redemption is plentiful and overflowing. He saves to the utmost, is what Scripture says. And perhaps the greatest blessing of all is knowing that he will redeem Israel from his iniquity. Not, not might, he will redeem his people. Now, by describing God's action as redemption, the psalmist implies that Israel is hopelessly entangled in its sin, right? So when we see that word redeem, the first time we saw it was when Israel was in captivity to Egypt, right? And God did what? Redeemed them. Three things need to happen with redemption. First off, you need someone that's helpless and cannot save themselves. You need a redeemer who's strong enough and willing to do that, uh, to, to make the redemption happen. And third, you need some kind of currency or means for it to happen, right? So uh, at the cross, we have blood, right? That's why he talks about his blood being the thing that purchased us. Um, with Egypt, it's this transaction of power where God does something. He doesn't pay anybody, but he, he does something and destroys Egypt in that sense. And so helplessness, a redeemer who's strong, and an actual transaction that happens, something, some kind of intervention that happens to redeem <laughs> God's people, well, he's saying the same thing here about Israel. In our sin, we are absolutely helpless. God's people of all time, Israel, we ourselves as a church, we are absolutely helpless in and of ourselves. We need someone stronger to redeem us out of our sin, right? I mean, just, just think about what you know about churches generally. How easy is it for us to divide? 
How easy is it for us to bite and devour one another? How easy is it for us to just turn in on one another, to, to be overly critical of one another, to judge one another? Sin is too strong for us. We need someone stronger than ourselves to get us out of that sin, out of our complacency, out of our idolatry, and we need some kind of transaction of power, and that's where Jesus' blood has come in for us. So that said, this psalm is trying to teach us how to be beggars for God's mercy, beggars who know that we are helpless, beggars who know that God is a great and strong redeemer, beggars who know that it has to be God who does it and not just ourselves. As pilgrims, we are those who confidently hope in the Lord's redemption, not in what we can do. That's the simple message of Psalm 130. Now we get into Psalm 131, which is a lot shorter than Psalm 130. We're not clear who wrote Psalm 130. Uh, we know that David wrote Psalm 131. There's a lot of parallels, right? So you get the double metaphors. He says, as watchmen wait in the morning in Psalm 130, and then in 131, he uses a double metaphor again uh, with, the, with the wean child, right? So he says wean child, and then he repeats it again, wean child. So there's some coupling of these metaphors. There's um, the same refrain, O Israel, hope in the Lord. So so it's very possible David wrote Psalm 130, and that Psalm 131 is the continuation of a song he had already written. So that's why I think we can read them together. It's because of all the parallels and the correspondences. So if we are going to read them together like this, then we see that hoping in the Lord means crying out for mercy. Hoping in the Lord means waiting confidently for the Lord's promises. Hoping in the Lord means calling others to the same hope. Now we will see that hoping in the Lord entails humbly calming our souls as we trust in him. Some of you really need to hear this. I need to hear this, especially. In this psalm, a quiet, calm soul is a humble soul. David writes, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. Now, something that's lifted up and, and lifted high, raised high, indicates pride. It's self-exaltation. In this case, a high heart manifests itself by being obsessed with things that God alone knows. He doesn't clarify what he means by things too great and too marvelous, where he says, I don't concern myself. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous. But that's a pretty wide category, isn't it? Things too great, too marvelous for us. As the king, as the king of Israel... David would naturally have a lot of concerns. What's going to happen to Jerusalem in the future? Which enemy is going to attack next? Is it going to be the Moabites, the Amorites, the Syrians, or the Philistines going to make a comeback? What might happen if they all join together and make a coalition against Israel? Will David die peacefully of old age, or is he going to die brutally on the battlefield? Lots of, lots of questions, right? And when the storm of worrisome thoughts come, David simply says, I don't occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him. He doesn't know what's going to happen to Jerusalem. He doesn't know what is in the Lord's plans for the future. So he doesn't occupy. He doesn't concern himself about it. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of the law. Let me just paraphrase that. If, if I were translating that, this is what I would say. Some things are none of your business. What's gonna happen tomorrow? 
is none of your business. The secret things belong to God. Who alone knows the future? It's a divine act of knowing the future, right? So, so God constantly tells Israel, go to your idols and ask them about the future. And the one that can tell you, that one's God. And the, the implicit thing there is that none of them can. They can't because they're not gods. God knows the future. God alone knows the future. And there's sometimes where it's just saying, it's none of my business. But a prideful heart wants to be in the know, doesn't it? It's a prideful heart that wants to be in the know. Prideful people tend to be nosy people. I'm just saying. I'm a pretty nosy person because I like to be in the know. I mean, I'm, I'm, past, I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Church. I'd, I'd like to know what's going to happen to this church a year from now. I'd like to know, is there going to be another pandemic that I need to prepare myself for? Is something going to happen six months from now that I'm going to have to dust off a resume? I mean, there's all kinds of questions, right? I mean, just to be quite open about it, I'm a pretty nosy person, and, and as a prideful heart, I, it, it tends not to rest. I just ruminate about the future. What's going to happen? Just sitting there thinking about what's going to happen. Here's the thing about that. In pride, the heart exal- exalts itself in pursuit of a divine vantage point, hoping to know things that God alone can know. Are we going to war? Is the economy about to implode? Are we all about to just lose a ton of money and get into a new Great Depression? What's going to happen to your, your spouse, to your kids, to your house, to your job? What if there's another pandemic? Can we really withstand that? Are your kids going to be alive next year? Are they still going to be following the Lord when they leave your house? How long are you going to live? Are you going to die in a fiery car crash on the way home or maybe die of cancer six months from now or die just randomly from unexplained causes in your bed a year from now? What's going to happen to you? It's at that moment David whispers. When we think of it, those are like terrifying thoughts, aren't they? Some of you are like, thanks for that. (laughs) Wasn't thinking about that until now. Maybe I'm just the only worrier in the room, I guess. I, I don't know. Does anybody else have, like, go to bed, like, with these questions on their minds? Like, you know, I said something to Rachel I shouldn't. Is she going to suffocate me with a pillow? You know, like, 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 am I the only worrier? I don't think so. Okay. Uh, all these thoughts come crashing in, right? All these thoughts come, come funneling through. And it's at that moment that Psalm 131, David, through Psalm 131, says, Don't concern yourself with things too great and too marvelous for you. It's above your pay grade to know what tomorrow is going to be. It's above your qualifications. Instead of sitting and dwelling on the unknown and the unknowable, you know, like I said, we like to be in the know, but instead of sitting there thinking about all the things that we don't know and would like to know, David teaches us a better way. He says, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. You see, David knows he's the king, but he's not the true king. There's an ultimate king above him. How many of you have had kids? How many of you have... Okay, go ahead and raise your hands. It's fine. Um, how many of you have seen nursing babies, right? So nursing babies, 
tend to want more biological needs met, right? So a, a nursing baby may cry for a number of reasons, right? It might be gas, might be a wet diaper. Um, you just go through the checklist. If you've been a dad in that stage, you're just like, okay, why won't this thing shut off? And you're kind of going through, right? And, and a nursing baby tends to be satisfied by eating, right? That's, that's by nursing. What about a weaned child? When a child's been weaned, what does the child want? What's going to satisfy the child? He's not crying for food anymore, right? Because he's been what? Weaned. Not crying for food. A weaned child cries out in the night for mama. That's it. Just mama's presence. Just to be held. We had, we probably are some of the ones that have most recently experienced what this is like, but, you know, Jonathan's two years old, so that means a year ago, we made the transition, you know, um, more than a year ago, but made the transition from nursing to a weaned child, and Jonathan sometimes will still cry at night, and all he wants is one of us, just to come pat him on the back, or cradle him back to sleep, or recover him up and give him a little kiss on the cheek and tell him everything's okay so he can go back to sleep. That's what he wants. David wants that from God. He doesn't, he doesn't want to be in the know. He's not crying out to God in the middle of the night to say, God, I'm worried about next morning. He's not crying out to God in the middle of the night saying, God, I, I, I want food. No, all he wants is the satisfaction of being in the Lord's presence. The satisfaction of being held. Just like a weaned child just wants mama to, to pull him in close. Well, David wants the Lord to pull him in close. Yes, surprise, surprise, the world's a dangerous place. We've lived in a society that has been relatively comfortable, but the world is dangerous. There be monsters here. Madmen, psychopaths, sinners like you. It's a dangerous place. It's a fallen world. But the beauty of a baby in a mother's arm is that baby doesn't care. Because he is mom. Safest place on earth. At that moment, mom is a fortress. Who cares there's lions out there? Who cares there's big great white sharks swimming in the deeps? He's in mama's arms. David comes to the Lord with that same assurance. There's enemies, there's Amorites, there's Edomites, there's Moabites, there's political downfalls, there's Absaloms, there's all kinds of things that can cause the kingdom to come crashing down. But in the middle of the night, all he wants is the Lord's presence, just to be held. You see, hoping in the Lord sometimes means stop asking questions. Hoping in the Lord sometimes means stop trying to find satisfaction and being in the know. Right? Some of our depression is based on the fact that we don't know what's going to happen. You're not going to know what's going to happen. He won't show you. Why? Because he wants you to want him. Hell can come tomorrow on earth. And as long as we're held by God, that's enough. 
Sometimes we want God's perspective, but we don't want God. Sometimes we want God's vantage point, but we don't want God. Sometimes we want God's power, but we don't want God. The psalmist teaches us to be like winged children that want nothing more than mama. We want God. That's it. Think of how this can transform you in your day, right? So a, a, a quiet moment on the back porch can be a restful session with our Father. A morning walk in the woods can be a momentary walk in the garden. A morning devotional time may actually become a momentary glimpse of the eternity that we're getting because God is good. But no, we're too busy being anxious for tomorrow that we can enjoy the presence of the Lord right now. Jesus says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is the day for its trouble. God feeds the birds. He clothes the field. Will he not do the same for you? My friends, it's time for us to address ourselves. If we're really going to hope in the Lord, then we hope for him, not for anything else. Not for our security, not for uh, our, our, our uh, 401Ks to go through, not for job promotion. We're not hoping in those things. We hope for Him and Him alone. Now, finally, hope in the Lord forever. That's the, that's the final uh, part of this psalm. David knows how difficult it is to trust in the Lord. Simply reading his life story, it's clear that there are all kinds of times and reasons and moments in David's life that he had to address this new, right? Like he, he faced new struggle after new struggle. The moment he got through a wave of trial, the cycle of anxiety and faith began again. Anybody do, do that? Like, like by 6 p.m. tonight, I might have reached a point where I trust the Lord for today. 6 a.m. tomorrow, we're going to start it all over again. It's a cycle, right? So that's why David says, oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. He knows that you don't just come into hope of the Lord, right, and just stay there. We go in and out of it because we're fickle people, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to lead the God I love, right? That's the, that's the song that we sing. We, we're prone to fall in and out of hope, right? So, so we see a news headline and boom, we're off to the races in fear, and then we read the scriptures and we're like, oh yeah. We put our hope in the Lord. And then a moment later, somebody goes, hey, I've got to talk to you. Oh Lord, what did I do? And then now we're off to the races again. Fear. And then we read a bit of scripture and then we're reminded that the Lord is sovereign and good and that his promises will endure. And then we comfort ourselves in that. And then an hour later, something else happens. Your wife calls and says, I feel sick. Oh, Lord, here we go again. We're off to the races in fear. David knows that we're going to go in and out of these moments of having faith in the Lord. We're such spiritually bipolar people. They go from faith to fear, faith to fear, just like this. And that's why he says, Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Your daily task as believers is to wake up to cry out, to wait, to call others to hope in God, to humble and quiet your heart as you hope in the Lord every single 
today. Doing it today is good. You'll need to do it tomorrow. You'll need to do it on Wednesday and Thursday and Friday until we see each other on Sunday. Hope in the Lord is something that we must continue to fight for. Why? Because we are jolly beggars. And we never stop. It's not that we stop being beggars. We just become jolly about being beggars, right? We become joyful about the fact that we're beggars. Right? So, so you think it might be bad news to be told that you're a beggar and that you'll never outgrow your need for God's grace. The most mature Christians are those who realize that that's a good thing. So let's be happy about being beggars from this time forth and forevermore. Because we depend on the Lord always.